the WCW Monday Nitro main event. Tonight, here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, a special heavyweight eliminator match. The winner of this match will go on to Super Brawl on Sunday, February 21st, to face the reigning United States heavyweight champion, Brett Hitman Clark. Scott Steiner's in the car! Scott Steiner's in the car! He's carjacked the car! And Kimberly! Oh my, oh no! Are you okay? You look a little pale. <laughs> I didn't mean to hurt you. <laughs> What's this? For me? <laughs> oh my god, is this what I think it is? David Flair, what on earth were you thinking? Well, you know what? I am the new and improved Space Mountain. Certainly ancient and justified? Well, maybe. Hello everybody and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara. Thank you for joining us for volume two of your monthly soiree through the, through the ever fascinating landscape that is 1999 in the world of professional wrestling. Here on volume two, we will be talking about World Championship Wrestling. On volume one, you've got the guys discussing the WWF, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Volume 3, ECW Hardcore TV. But with me today, and you'll hear from them very, very shortly, I have the WCW Dream Team, if you will, of Bob Colling Jr. and Billy Johnson. And after we hop into the time machine, I'll tell you what's been happening south of the Mason-Dixon line and the one man it all seems to revolve around. But now, strap yourselves in. Here we go. <laughs> Pretty much everything in the news this month revolves around one man and one man only, and that is Kevin Nash, for it has been officially confirmed that he is now THE Booker of World Championship Wrestling. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Wasn't he in charge three months ago? <laughs> Wasn't he in charge two months ago? Wasn't he in charge one month ago? Apparently, 
Only now has it been officially confirmed, but let's face it, we all know the truth. He told wrestlers they need to get to the arena when they are asked to, which is now early in the afternoon on Mondays. They plan to do more pre-produced vignettes and interviews, which really worries me. A hotline number has been set up for wrestlers to call to find out for which events they are scheduled for. And this line, directly from The Torch, tickled me, as I'm sure it will all of you. Nash also said there will be zero tolerance for wrestlers putting up a fuss about doing jobs. Uh, hum. He also thinks there are only five wrestlers in the WCW locker room who are really worth a snuff. And the best worker in the world, not just the organisation, the world, is of course Scott Hall. So yes, this is what we're dealing with here. Ric Flair is already on the outs with him. But right about now, all is sweetness and light between Nash and Hogan. I wonder how long that is going to last. In a not unconnected piece of news, Kevin Nash also does not actually like anybody coming up to maybe say to him, Boss, you're not doing this right. He will accuse you of not being a team player. Lots of the wrestlers in the back are so unhappy with this current state of affairs, they want Terry Taylor back. Cluck, cluck. The first pay-per-view under the new regime was Super Brawl, which ended in a shocking turn of David Flair betraying his, his father. I mean, Ric Flair himself would never turn on anybody, of course. His son has actually done it. Where on earth did he get that from? The rest of the event was kind of okay, or at least I thought so, and you will hear our thoughts later on in the show. Tensions really are running high as there was another report of a backstage brawl, very real one, on uh, February the 1st between Kidman and Ernest Miller. In fact, it actually spilled into a bar at the hotel after the, the event in Minneapolis. As Kidman walked by Miller, Miller grabbed him just to horse around, as it is quoted. A surprise Kidman did not appreciate it and let him know by shoving him away. Miller shoved him back and then it degenerated into a good old fist fight. Kidman apparently said to him, if that's the best you've got, you're not the greatest in the world. Miller heard him, of course, and they rucked again for a good other 30 seconds, apparently. Although most reports suggest that Miller actually started the fight, he is on Eric Bischoff's protected list, and karate and all that, so he is able to get away with all this kind of thing. Kidman, on the other hand, eh, took him a couple of days, but it all seems to be water under the bridge, at least for now. He's still winning matches, which is probably the way to test where people really are. Unlike our old friend Chris Jericho, who I repeat is 100% definitely, completely leaving the company when his contract expires. There was a little bit of talk at the start of February that an improved six-figure offer was coming his way, but that has now been taken off the table. Expect to see him in the WWF sometime in the late summer. And you will notice when we get to the TV reports for the February the 1st Nitro, there's no mention of Hulk Hogan. Why? Because he wasn't there. The story is that he did not particularly want to appear in Minneapolis, Minnesota, because he felt once fans saw him, he would be taunted with chance of Jesse, Jesse. <laughs> Still bitter, are we, Hollywood? Uh, he has no desire to turn up at Minneapolis events for that reason, and the extortion lawsuit he filed against a woman who claimed he sexually harassed her. If you remember, we talked about that one mm, a good year ago now. Staying away from Minneapolis to, and I quote, rather than open himself to mainstream publicity. Some mistake, surely. Um, is that Kimberly? That's not only Kimberly! You're looking live outside! That's DDP! Oh my! Where did he come from? They're not going to wait until Super Brawl! Not at all! Not at all! 
the car, Kimberly and DDP, and Scott Steiner's in the car. Scott Steiner's in the car. He's carjacked the car, and Kimberly. Oh, my. Oh, no. Oh, oh my God. We open the month in the Twin Cities with Hennig, which is appropriate, and Wyndham arriving. And the win in the tag team tournament later will take them closer to the NWO and Co. and avenge last week's beatdown. And earlier Scott Steiner intrudes on a Nitro Girls rehearsal and makes Kimberly fall. And now here's Conan, and then Gene brings out Ray, and I have already said and too many times, but I'm not the one booking this. Ray grew up watching Kevin and Lex, I'm sure they appreciated that. Conan and Ray will make the Strawberry Fools bow down in a match at Super Brawl with any stipulation they wish. Vince tries and fails to get the B, the B team a car to the arena, but Hollywood chips in. Guys, he's only being nice because he wants something. We are at the target centre, so of course Flair makes Bishop sit in a dunk tank outside in the freezing cold, whilst JJ Dillon and La Parker for some reason throw things. Attitude. So. It's Hennig and Wyndham versus Benoit and Malenko. Fine stuff here, with Bazza in particular looking pretty good. Benoit breaks up a pinfall with a diving headbutt, but hurts himself, and the Hennigplex gets the win. Flair is out for an interview in his birthplace, but he has homecomings everywhere these days, doesn't he? The internal mechanism of the NWO has fallen apart, and at Super Bowl, he will tie Hogan in a knot. Once again, he mangles Brett's, catch Brett's catchphrase, just like I did, before telling him he will wrestle Benoit at the pay-per-view. Yep, I'll have some of that. But here comes Hall. He should be number one contender, offered for the US title, but Flair accuses him of living in a fantasy world. Despite what Hall thinks, Chris does have the guts to come out here, and the horsemen stand tall, and it is Benoit Scott tonight. The commentators pay tribute to Giant Baba, who passed away yesterday, in lieu of actually talking about Hammer vs Chaos. Awful Spinebuster wins it for Hammer, who then takes a Singapore caning from a certain someone. The commentators have no idea who he is. He takes the mic, and it cuts out, which I hope was on purpose, and tells us he was the first man to wrap barbed wire around his body and baseball bats. Bam Bam Bigelow, you're talking to the King of Extreme. Bam Bam emerges, and it's an impromptu hardcore match versus this man, and it's actually quite good. Greetings from Asprey Park onto the chair. Hey, aren't you? Paige is looking for Steiner, and reasonably enough, he tries the NWO locker room. He isn't there. Well, he is actually, hiding in another door with... somebody? So DDP comes to the ring and calls him out. Instead we get Disco singing Song Song Blue. He slaps Dallas, as requested, and pays, as expected. Lash the Rue. Yes, I've no idea who he is either. Faces Kidman. He loses to the SSP but he makes a promising showing in doing so. Booker tells us that he is back to full fitness and ready to race the roof. Steiner vs Jericho next, that's a strange fit. Saturn stops for Lionheart from leaving, and BPP wins with the recliner. Luger and Nasha here to confirm at Super Brawl it's Ray's mask versus Liz's hair. The Cat versus Norton, back to the litter tray tiddles. Gene brings out Goldberg, one of the most popular men I have ever seen. 
Bigelow will see no fear in these eyes. You call yourself an extremist? To me, you're only one thing. Next. And as you heard in the open, a special heavyweight eliminator match is not the most stupid thing Buffer says about Horby Benoit. Mongo and the Horseman take care of Disco, but Nash does enough to distract the Crippler, and Hall catches him in the edge for the win. But we close with Hogan following David Blair. In Buffalo, New York on the 8th, we begin with clips from Thunder of a phone conversation between Anderson and Flair, but we don't hear the latter. The essence is that nobody knows what happened with David Flair last week. We then cut back live to Arn taking a beating at the hands of Disco, as Nash and Hall look on with approval. Ray faces a fellow masked man in the debuting Blitzkrieg. The newcomer is definitely one to keep your eye on, but Mysterio takes the win with a top rope Rana. Canyon comes round to Raven's house because he, and Raven's mum, are worried about him but the man from the Bowery calls him a mark, complete with winter camera, so they head out in a sports car instead. Hollywood tells Horace that he is the guy to lead the black and white guys, but not to tell them. I'm sure they won't be watching or anything. Booker V Finley ends when T hits a missile dropkick, just for the victory. Raven and Canyon turn up as a bank and draw out 20,000 big ones. Then first they need to get the former Mortis the right look. After a shot of Bischoff on janitor duties, don't ask, Here's Flair with Gene. Hall and Nash put fuel on the fire, and tonight with Mongo in tow, they shall burn the place down. He helpfully demonstrates what he will do to Hogan in two weeks, add your own Flair wrestling himself gags, and now calls out the hitman. Despite Brett's supposed injury, he wants him to face Rowdy Roddy Piper tonight. A disgruntled Brett then gets in the face of one Will Sasso at ringside. And now Hogan wants Stevie Ray to lead the crew, and again, to keep quiet about it. Tournament match, Hennigan Wyndham versus Horace and Adam. After a typically terrible contest, Stevie snatches a slapjack off Vincent and then accidentally whacks Adams, allowing Hennig to get the pin. The black and white argue afterwards, but we go backstage again and this time Hogan says Vince should take charge. Yeah, huh. Here's Bam Bam. He has in his hand a USA Today article where Goldberg was talking about animal rights. He should not have his mind on cockfights was on Super Brawl and on the Beast from the East. Bama offers to put a leash around Bill's old lady, and that brings out the man himself. And once again, it takes tons of yellow shirts to separate them. DDP tears through chaos and wins with the cutter. The Canyon clothes shopping thing takes them to Versace, as he describes it. In turn, Raven calls him a jabroni. They then hit the clubs and make it home just before his mum does. WCW have called, and they want him to go back to work. The black and white convince Vince, <clears throat> say that five times, he is being called out by the cat. He tries to convince Disco he is being called out, but Inferno doesn't buy it. So Vince has no choice but to take up the challenge and actually wins after crushing the cat on the top rope. Steiner follows Kimberly out to the car, but DDP finds him and beats him up. But when security step in, Scott sneaks into the car and makes off with Kim in it. And then he dumps her out onto the concrete with the vehicle still moving. She gets put into an ambulance, and Tony wants charges pressed. Yeah, like that happens in wrestling. So we're getting Brett v Piper, and WrestleMania 8, it ain't. Hart actually attacks Sasso during the match, and he gets revenge by stopping Brett reviving the bumped ref. Piper gets a roll up and becomes the new US champ. Main event is indeed Flair and Mongo versus Hall and Nash. Pretty rote stuff here until Hogan comes to the ring with a bucket. He douses Mongo, but Flair is able to fend off the outsiders with a double ball shot. Goldberg comes to the rescue, and then also sees off Bam Bam 
as we close. Lots of TV to get through, I'm afraid, before we reach the pay-per-view. And what you heard there was the then latest instalment of the Scott Steiner-Kimberly Page saga. The basic tenet of the story is really quite simple. He wants to get into Kimberly Page's knickers. And he has tried doing so by various means. Walking into the Nitro Girls locker room. Pushing her over during a dance routine. And where do you go from there? Well, obviously, you try to kidnap her, basically. You punch Diamond Dallas Page in the face. You then drive around the parking lot. And then you throw her out of the car face first. And they say chivalry is dead. Now, at this time of year, it's February. What's wrong with roses and a box of chocks? You know, commandeering a car. And that's before we get to the small fact of the matter that she is actually a married woman. So, guys, as effective a sex pest as Scott Steiner might well be playing these days, this isn't how you build heat. Well done, WCW. Scott Steiner. Obviously, you know, he talks about his freaks and uh, other things that he likes to do with his freaks. This is just not a good route to go with the Scott Steiner character. Um, it's really not getting the right kind of heat on him, in my opinion. And in the society that we live in in 1999, it seems that a lot of people seem to like what he's doing because he seems to be getting more cheers, which is just very, very bizarre, in my opinion. I think anytime you bring in a woman, especially a wife, uh, to be added to the character of DDP, who's this guy kind of like a rebel and goes around diamond cutting everybody. When you bring in a uh, a character that would need, I guess, constant support or you know distraction, I can see fans, including myself, kind of getting annoyed that this that DDP is like getting derailed by constantly having his wife involved. So I don't know if uh, if that will even help out DDP, but. It, it adds a little bit to Scott Steiner. I mean, I don't know how much of this is Scott acting. So, I mean, that's impressive in itself. Yes, very convincing. Very, very convincing. Too much so. And I think the real Mrs. Steiner might want to ask a few questions, perhaps. But as we will see when we get to the pay-per-view, they did at least carry the feud into the match. They didn't just drop it when they got there. And when we talk about the pay-per-view... I'll let you know exactly what we mean by that. But yes, controversial. I do wonder what our friends at Standards and Practices really think about this. It's risque. It's risky. It's close to the bone. I don't want to see it again. All right, trying to get the referee in. Look at, oh, we got a twirl. Mickey James and tug of war between Sasso and Hart. And a roll up. Piper. One, two, three. What a way to come back to Nitro! Rowdy Roddy Piper is the new United States Heavyweight Champion! Okay, part 852 in the ever-running saga of why a WCW and how a WCW fucking Bret Hart up so... Fucking Bret Hart up so much. Punchy title, name slip very much included. So yes, he is now embroiled in a feud... If it's, now those words are hard to say as well. Embroiled in a feud with some guy called Will Sasso, who Bob will tell you about very, very shortly. He's a fan. But um, Brett was actually cost the 
US title by this Mr. Sasso in a match against Piper on Nitro. Safe to say, WrestleMania 8, it was not. He did at least get to beat him in a match. Yes, a match against Will Sasso on Nitro with the help of one of Will Sasso's other sidekick type people. I don't know. Bob, what is this nonsense? Yeah, well, uh, Will Sasso is currently an actor on Mad TV, which is similar to Saturday Night Live, but it's not nearly as popular or well-known. I actually prefer Mad TV to SNL because it's more of a uh, risk-taking type of show. It's more creativity, in my opinion. But he is 23 years old, but you would probably never have guessed that, judging by his size and overall not good-looking health that he currently has. He's a lifelong wrestling fan, so this is not anything new for him. Uh, he, uh, I believe Brett had been on Mad TV back when he was in the WWF, so this would be um, kind of like a second go-around. There is some familiar – some uh, they're, they're used to each other, needless to say. But, yeah, Will Sasso is 23 years old. I believe he's Canadian. Yeah, he is Canadian, uh, so that helps out there. So they, they should get along. I don't know why they – I thought Canadians were friendly, but apparently they're not. <laughs> um, yeah, that's all there is for Will Sasso. So he's uh, not really well known or anything, for the most part. Twenty-three and the rest, <laughs> as they say. Oh, I just I don't know this. Why have you paid this much money to bring Bret Hart over from the competition? And he was so hot as well, uh, coming over from the Fed and. He's just really done nothing. He's uh, now a hill, and <laughs> I, I just don't understand why you're booking him the way you are. You know, seriously, at this point with Brett, it's like you would think maybe it's time for him to uh, possibly disappear for a little while and come back refreshed because the booking has just done him no favors ever since he's come in in December of 97. It's just, he's stagnated and stalled, and they really need to do something to rejuvenate Brett. Yes, it was a few months ago on our show, August 98, talking about Road Wild, and we were all on that one, where I said the wrestling entertainment world crossover has probably reached its apex and not in a good way. Well, I was wrong. All right, maybe. I mean... Okay, you're a fan, Bob. You're a fan. Okay, fair enough. But Brett getting into a feud with some 300-plus-pound fifth-rate comedian, and then, after this, not appearing on the pay-per-view, and then losing clean as a sheet to Booker T. And how did he lose that match? In the same way he was defeated by Davey Boy Smith at SummerSlam 92. Brett, quite simply, you are fucked. <laughs> We don't waste any time on the 15th with Arn beating up Disco, and let's face it, why would you wait? Security, who are earning their keep these days, cart him off. Bischoff is Flair's chauffeur today, with helpfully placed cameras everywhere, and this includes a detour. Saturn, still in the dress, manages to see off an interfering Jericho, before his trouble ends up seeing ceiling for Jerry Flynn. Well, that's one way to stand out. 
Blitzkrieg, Psychosis and Hoovy face Kahlo, Dandy and Gaza. Curious moment in this one, as Guerra flubs the DDT on Dandy and then apologises to everyone for getting it wrong. Even despite all the thrills and spills, it's Blitzkrieg again who really catches the eye, and he secures the pin on Kahlo after THE Sky Twister Press. So, you know Bischoff was chauffeuring Flair? And that detour? It takes them off-road, where they get tracked by a helicopter with a spotlight and the NWO in balaclavas. After a lot of circling, they then beat down the Nature Boy in a field with only the throb of the copter providing a soundtrack. Benoit and Malenko versus Finley and Taylor. A headbutt and cloverleaf mean they advance in whatever this tournament is. The Nitro girls are here for an interview. <laughs> yeah, you heard me. It's been a tough week, but they all miss and love Kimberly. The acting is utterly atrocious here, but, you know. And as if last week wasn't bad enough for him, Brett is now having to wrestle Will Sasson. This is putrid, and somehow still finds time for a turn. No, not me turning my television to molten plastic, although it should have been, but a Mad TV cast member called Deborah Wilson hitting Will with a chair. Hart gets the win, but what a loser he truly is. Hogan is back and he bears a scary resemblance to Bruce Forsyth in that ski mask. Look at him, he's so unappealing, but he's still going to do his dealing. Yes, he wants a match with Flair tonight. He gives him the old 10 count, I guess the 8 before. The bagpipes kick in. Piper is acting commissioner, convenient, you might say, so they wrestle for the world title right now. Tony has the nerve to call it electrifying. Seriously, Trevor Bayliss has a closer relationship with Electra Steve in this match. Roddy puts on the sleeper, but there's the sodding taser again, and you can actually hear the crowd rolling their eyes. Back to the grassland and Flair is being rescued, not by the cameraman who has just been watching him all this time, but some random driver in a turnip truck. I fancy a cold glass of turnip juice. We hear from somebody who isn't Eric Landstrom, well, I don't think it's Eric Landstrom, that Steiner is suing DDP for $1 million. A day, even. Benoit and Malenko are back versus Enos and Riggs. During this chin lock fest, we see the driver checking his engine. Flair tries to leave but collapses, under the weight of the storyline I'm sure, and gets put back in. Match ends with Benoit locking on the crossface for the victory. The NWO interrupt buffer, stopped clock and all that. They know Flair is hiding and now here comes a 20 count. We see Flair arrive and stagger his way to the ring. The horsemen try to help but get nowhere and Rick gets beaten down with his own axe handle as we roll backwards into the pay-per-view. Relax, Black Lloyd. You sure? Yeah, we're fine, don't worry. You three out of the car, this ain't about you. Wait. What the hell's going on?
Well, I am sure that particular audio clip told you all you needed to know anyway, but we're going to try and flesh it out just a little bit more, i.e. at all. So, going back a few weeks, since Ric Flair took over as storyline owner of the company, he has been getting a bit of revenge on one Eric Bischoff, assuming him various menial tasks. He's been a custodian, so to speak. He's been a dunk tank. He's been in a dunk tank. I'm playing a dunk tank. No, no, let's not go there. He's been building the ring with good old Klondike Bill. Various things like that. So today, on this edition of Nitro, he was Ric Flair's chauffeur. And you knew something was going down, because there were cameras all over the car. Very, very helpfully provided. Including one in the trunk. And no, Cheatham did not pop out, unfortunately. Missed opportunity there. You again, as Thing would say. Anyway, so Bischoff drives Flair to some empty open field somewhere. Flair seems somewhat perturbed by this. He wonders what's going on. Next thing he knows, he sees that four or five cars have been following behind them. And of course, they contain various members of the NWO, who for some reason feel the need to conceal their identity. Okay, just thinking about it, there are one or two reasons I wouldn't want people to know that I'm in the NWO, but I'm not sure that's where they were going with this. Yes, in ski masks, balaclavas, etc., they beat on Flair for a ludicrously long time. I should add at this point, there is a helicopter hopefully filming all of this from above and giving them a nice big light so they can see what's going on. So that's nice. And then the NWO eventually scarper. About 20 or so minutes later, we see Flair lying down in a field. Cameraman next to him, not helping him, because why would he? But some bloke in a cowboy hat in a turnip truck does offer his services to Mr. Flair, identifying him, putting him in the back of the car, and somehow knowing where the WCW organisation were holding their show that night, because he drives them there without Flair being able to say a word. Okay, so... End of the show, NWO are in the ring doing their thing. We know it far too well. We've seen it ten zillion times over the last two and a half years. Here comes Flair. His shirt's ripped. His eyes are bloodshot. He's carrying an axe handle. We know where he's been. But, Billy, and we talked about this off-air, the commentary team did not see any of the pre-tapes, so they had no idea what was going on at all. When they see Flair in this state... Bobby Heenan cheerfully chimed in with, Is he smashed? <laughs> and you could say that Heenan would know, but we'll talk about that when we get to the pay-per-view. But Billy, your thoughts on this segment and the fact that the commentators were not clued in just made them look stupid. Uh. Yeah, I don't know what WCW were thinking with um, with this whole idea. It started at I want to say the beginning of the month where the announcers just weren't acknowledging like what happened in backstage vignettes. Yeah. And one that really stood out to me, and this was a very important plot point. to the story that they were trying to tell that night was, uh, when Bischoff was the janitor. Now Hogan was backstage and he grabbed the bucket. Now earlier on in that night, Bischoff had smelt the bleach and he poured it into that bucket. So you knew uh-huh. that bucket that was being handed to Hogan was the one for the bleach. And then Hogan came down to ringside, threw it into Mongo's eyes. And the announcers were just like, but that's water. 
No, there's bleach in there. So that made them look so fucking stupid because everyone's watching it at home. Yep. And it's just, why are you making your announcers come off as idiots? They're supposed to be, you know, the guys that know everything that's going on. They're not supposed to be portrayed as complete and utter buffoons. And I just didn't understand it. It made me so angry. It was like, why are you doing this? When they are supposed to be able to help the audience at home. They might not have necessarily seen all of the earlier actions that were going on. And the stuff with Flair, it was just like... <coughs> they kept saying how he was in the back. And we had all seen that he'd been attacked in the field by the NWO, which was very comical, I may add. It was it was hilarious. Flair's setting was uh, spot on. But it just made them look so... I'm sorry to swear, but it made them look so fucking stupid. And it made me feel stupid for even valuing their opinion as announcers. As for the Flair stuff uh, with the... Ter- with the Terry chart, like I said, it was just... It was very comical. It was... <laughs> If you want, you can't take these things seriously. If you took them seriously and tried to apply logic to them, it, you have a meltdown over all of this, everything that went on <laughs> with this angle. But it was just so comical. And uh, when Heenan quite rightly stated that is he smashed, that that really made me laugh. And Flair's trying to hold himself up with an axe handle, and you've got like you quite rightly pointed out, there's helicopters. And this thing, and you're starting to think, hold on a minute. You know, I know WCW has done quite well over the years financially, but how much money did they waste on this whole stupid, <laughs> stupid idea? Oh, I, I, I don't know how else to, to explain it, Roy. It just, it hurt my head. <laughs> well, I don't know how we. Uh can go into a field where there's cameramen and a helicopter flying over it and authorities are not called. You mentioned about the uh, commentators not even knowing what was taking place. So maybe their all their TV cameras were broken or something. I don't know. Uh, the whole, the whole thing just is ludicrous because it, it felt like it's, it took a half hour and they were just toying with him. And the whole idea of just dragging him to a field to record beating him up i don't know what inspired that i don't even know who thought that would be a good idea it didn't drive up any interest for me for their for the hogan flair match or anything and uh it just it felt like it dragged on way too long and it is funny like i said that the announcers are just like well flares uh flares just went to the airport or something he went to the hotel he's probably fine you know not who knows hogan's a good guy i don't you know it's just It's just poorly executed stuff and just a probably overall bad idea. Yeah, ludicrous, wasn't it? I'm completely done with NWO beatdowns. And yes, if you scratch the surface, I'm kind of done with the NWO now, but it began again last month. And I fear as long as I'm going to be doing these shows, I'm going to have to deal with the NWO in some way, shape or form. So I've just got to learn to love it, so to speak. Yeah, this was really stupid. I referenced the 1993 mini-movies earlier, and that's kind of like what this felt like. And the expense they must have gone through, as you say, to shoot all that, get their helicopter, etc, etc. Now, if you really want them just to beat up Flair, do it in the ring. You know, it's he's used to it. You don't need to have him 
lying down in reeds and uh, having some bloke in a turnip truck. I want to make that clear. A turnip truck coming to his rescue. It's the simplest trope in pro wrestling. The go-home show for the pay-per-view. Have the bad guys beat up the good guy. And then you're tuning in the next week. Happy to plonk down your hard-earned cash to see the good guy get his revenge. Here they just went way too far for no real reason. And did the good guy even get his revenge? Let's find out. It's Super Brawl time. Billy, let's have the results if you would please. Okay, so Booker T defeated Disco Inferno. Uh, Chris Jericho uh, won by countout over Perry Saturn. Uh, Billy Kidman defeated Chavo Guerrero to retain the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Kurt Henning and Barry Windham defeated Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko to win the WCW World Tag Team Championships. The Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, defeated Conan and Rey Mysterio in a hair versus mask match. Scott Steiner defeated Diamond Dallas Page to retain the WCW World Television title. Scott Hall defeated Rowdy Roddy Piper to win the US title. Goldberg defeated Bam Bam Bigelow. And finally, Hollywood Hulk Hogan defeated Ric Flair to, re to retain the World Heavyweight Championship. Complete with the cadence of a bingo caller. Bob, what did you think of WrestleMania um, Super Brawl 9? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I went into it with some high hopes. And I would say uh, my hopes were kind of crumbled a little bit. Not awfully, but it humble. I was humbled, needless to say. Uh, for In regards to how I felt about it, I felt like I didn't waste three hours. Just to give a tease for my actual thoughts throughout the show. What do you say, Billy? Uh, the first half was generally quite entertaining and very solid. Um, the last part of the event, and I will get into this much later on, just made me angry. Yeah, I didn't mind this too much. Am I allowed to say that? It's probably the most fun, if that's the right word, I've had watching a WCW pay-per-view since, well, definitely World War Three, but I might go back a bit further. Great American Bash, perhaps? I think the undercard, again, had a lot of work to do, and they were allowed to do it, and they were assisted by a lot of in-ring booking as well. That's often been a downfall. Not their fault. But here I thought the in-ring work and the outcomes came together quite nicely. But as is so often, when we got to that last fatal hour, as Ian Curtis sang, it all fell apart. It's As soon as we hit what we know to be the big matches in a WCW pay-per-view, we know what that means. And boy, oh boy, it never gets easier. But let's talk through how we got there, what we got, and where on earth we can go from this. So we open Super Brawl with a shot in a hotel room of the young lady we have seen a lot of on the previous editions this month of Nitro. So let me fill you in. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this young lady from a camera's eye view. She's talking to somebody behind the lens. We do not know who. And we see her in various places. At a pool table, by a bar, in a taxi, in a hotel room, in a hotel room. And in a hotel room, if you're like me, with the rewind button. And we're in a hotel room again here. So she starts the show by talking to the camera. 
saying that her and whoever it is behind the camera need to decide what they're going to get to eat. But the guy behind the camera, his appetite is elsewhere, it would appear. So he offers her something, her eyes widen, it appears into the camera shot in what I appear is called a POV, it grows before our eyes. What can it possibly be? Yes, a set of tickets for Super Brawl. What else was anybody thinking? <clears throat> More on her and whoever the guy behind the camera is later in the show. So let's get down to business then, in-ring business. Disco Inferno against Booker T. The commentators are still banging on about tradition, but even Tony seems a bit bored of that now. He thinks read the NWO, it's pointless even talking about tradition. And he's right. Booker takes early control here with some power offense, including some much improved punches. That is until Disco hits a spinning neckbreaker, which also looked quite good. Big Disco sucks chance here, that's quite the throwback, and we don't have to wait long for our first full arm dragon twist. Thank you Tony. Clap clap clap. Disco with a beal, and he seems rather pleased with that one, but the crowd don't. A clothesline and some GNP by Booker meets with their approval however. Another clothesline in the corner and the book is in the game. Diving forearm gets us a two count. He sets too early on a backdrop though and Inferno takes back over with some offense which sadly includes a sleeper. Booker gets out quickly though but then gets his bell rung with a clothesline over the top. Back in for a slam and an axe handle for a solid two. Booker though rolls off some spin kicks, rather quickly really, and then the axe kick and hits with a sidewalk slam which the brain calls a kick. Disco then decapitates Book with a clothesline and dares him to get up. No chart buster though, as Disco throws him into the buckle, then the spin. The crowd really like that. We fight on the top rope, but again, the eye gloats. So he gets shoved off and kind of-ish sort of hit with the Harlem hangover for the W. Boys, what do we think? Well, it kind of proved to me that you don't need to have a cruiserweight match to have a, a solid opener. I was actually pleasantly surprised by this. First off, the crowd is seemingly lively and really into anything that was going on here between Booker and Disco. I thought I mean, everything pretty much held my interest. Uh, they didn't get a bunch of time, though, so I didn't have any really moments to drag on. It went less than 10 minutes. Uh, as I've been stating since the beginning of uh, my appearances on here, I think Booker T is primed for a breakout year. Um, he, just lo he looks fuller. like He's not so lengthy anymore. He's got some... He's got some more muscle on him. He just looks like a viable threat to any kind of upper mid-card, even main event guys. I would, I think I would totally buy into it uh, if he were to elevate himself up the card. And the finish, the Harlem hangover, I love it. And I was concerned for Disco Inferno for a minute because it looked like he landed right on his face. But Inferno's got a big enough nose that it probably like saved him from serious injury. So uh, probably nothing to worry about there. But, um, I mean... That's probably a move that Booker wouldn't be able to do to like a Hogan or a Flair or anybody of that nature. So he'll need a new finisher if that's what he's going for. But uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought they, they worked a good match. Disco might have played to the crowd a little bit too much and, and hurt his flow. But uh, I, I enjoyed the start here for Super Bowl Nine. Having a big nose gets you a long way. Uh, yeah, I like Bob. I, I was presently surprised by this one. Um a really good match. Uh, it's, it's great to see back Booker back. And uh, but all I could really think about through this entire match was uh, where Booker T is heading and um, sort of 
why they decided to go in this direction, have Booker beat Disco here. You know, uh, what is Disco Inferno at this point? He's a low-card uh, comedy act. It really doesn't do much for Booker's momentum. But I know he's sort of been out with injury for as a better part of last year and has uh, just, like, basically come back. Uh, but still, why are you uh, sticking him in a match with Disco Inferno? Where is Booker T's big comeback uh, again, in a grudge match against a guy that they've been saying on TV put him out in Bret Hart? Now, I know they decided to do that on Nitro, but would that not have been a better match to have placed here, Bret Hart and Booker T? I just, I just wondered why they decided to go with that. Uh, on this show with Booker. It just sort of made me think. Yes, this one was fine. I like Booker a lot. He's on the cusp of something fairly great, I think. He gets a lot of screen time on Nitro, a lot of interview time as well. And I do think they're trying to pick back up where they left off with him before he got injured in the middle part of last year. Disco, it's not the last we see of him this month. I really wish he wasn't in the NWO. I don't believe that he would be there, really. They do this a lot, don't they? They tried it with Louis Spicoli a year ago, as if the NWO need sidekick types. I'm not sure they do, even at this juncture. But anyway, he's a fine enough worker. He and Booker meshed as well as you can expect here. Nothing earth-shattering, but a perfectly fine opener. Right guy winning. Disco did his job. I can move on. To what we call, oh, what we, <laughs> the royal we, what Tony and Tony only calls a return dress match between Jericho and Saturn. In my notes, I've got Jericho v. Ralphus. I should not give them ideas. Jericho versus Saturn it is then, and Scott Dickinson is the ref. We spill outside straight after the bell, the match that is, not the dress, and it's a crowd brawl from the off. Jericho, though, grabs a cup and throws it in Saturn's eyes, but it has no effect. But a good shot to the steps does. Keep it simple. Standing switch ends with Saturn locking on a full Nelson and a very cool T-bone suplex. I think that's his best move. He holds the ropes on a dropkick attempt, then slingshots for Lionheart back down to the floor and follows him out with a crossbody. Slightly messily. He then chucks Ralphus in the ring, dress and all, and then tears it off him. And the result ain't pretty, folks. Jericho dropkicks Saturn in the back of the head to take over, including a vertical suplex. And Jericho goes for the come on baby pin. No, it still doesn't win. And again, every month, folks, until it does. I'm going to mention it. Jericho whiffs on a rope walk, of all things, and takes a standing sidekick to the stomach. Slammed by Saturn, and up he goes. Frog splash hits, but no cover. He calls for the DVD instead, but Jericho catches him into a flash pin for a close two. He then dumps Jericho under his dress. <laughs> Yikes. But Jericho gets on the tamer quickly. Saturn fights out, but it's a German suplex. A fight on the buckles ends with a Jericho crossbody, but Saturn switches up into the rings, and he really cinches in. So you know Stu Hart approves. <laughs> the next time you want to make sure you pull at least one of his arms out. <laughs> and Billy, I'm two for two now on the Stu Hart challenge. Anyway, Jericho gets his foot on the ropes. Hard front suplex by Saturn, who then tries for Lion Salt. He misses, but the real deal hits. Again, though, only for two. DVD attempt after a scrap. Hits, but again... No pinfall, because he is paying back Dickinson with the DVD. And he just walks off to take the eventual count-out DQ loss. He says to the camera, life's a drag, and I hope the person who gave him that line has hopefully already been fired. Billy. 
<laughs> How could I follow that? Um, <laughs> I, I genuinely liked most of this match. Um, the in-ring work was really enjoyable. The comedy spot was with Ralphus was a bit... Uh, I, t- <laughs> I don't know why that, that just was a bit stupid. Uh, now, obviously with Perry Saturn walking off, he has to remain in the dress, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, WCW are going for a cross-dressing wrestler, yes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a company like WCW, do you really think they're that progressive and forward-thinking? Um. <laughs> I I really don't know what they're trying to do here. Um it's not going to pay off because Jericho cut a promo beforehand where he called him a cross-dressing freak and most of the crowd cheered. So I don't know if uh, <laughs> this Perry Saturn, the cross-dresser, is necessarily going to work. Are you in any way suggesting, Billy, that the WCW crowd are somewhat unenlightened? Uh, yes, I'm totally suggesting that. <laughs> And probably fairly. Bob, your thoughts on all of that? I won the match as well. Uh, well, yeah, I thought it was. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good match. Uh, they definitely have chemistry, uh, and everything they did, I, I thought flowed pretty well. Um, I did know here that Saturn, Saturn seems to work better wearing a dress. He seems <laughs> like more confident, or I don't know what's going on. But compared to the other matches that I've seen him thus far on here, I mean, him in a dress, he. Just maybe the way that this, you know, the dress flies up on him when he's diving through the air it just looks nice or something. I don't know, but uh, yeah, he. I thought it was it was pretty good. The lack of finish doesn't bother me. Usually, I'll, I'll be on here saying I need a finish, whatever. But what I took away from it, as you guys are noting here, is that you know Saturn might want to be a cross dresser. The WCW fans are not going to get that. They're probably going to call him a queer and uh, you know various other insults, but. Uh, I kind of liked it. I, I, I love the idea that Saturn, he's kind of uh, embraced it, and this has backfired essentially on Jericho. So, uh, the, like the Ralphus thing too. I mean, Ralphus is probably the most over babyface in the match anyway, so his involvement um, didn't bother me at all either. But, uh, yeah, I was quite surprised that back-to-back here, I uh, I got two enjoyable matches. I had, a, I had to... Uh, wipe my eyes clean for a second to make sure that I was watching WCW. Just another good match between two good guys. Guys who perhaps could and should be a little bit better. Every single month I live out of my own individual constitutional crisis about how good a worker Chris Jericho is. He's very good. He's very, very good. He's not quite top class. And I think Saturn is just a notch below two. But a very good person against a good person for 10 minutes without too much rubbishy overbooking. I know Ralphus was kept to a minimum. I'm fine with these two going at it. And if this feud goes on for one more month, which of what I've read correctly, it's going to, I'm pretty much okay with that, really. Just need to be aware... Of diminishing returns and an overdressed thing, you can't keep going there as much as Saturn particularly enjoys it. But Ralphus, without kit aside, nothing to really hate here. Match number three Billy Kidman 
against Chavo Guerrero. A recent tag team explode, which seems to be all the rage these days. Chavo is a basic level heel again, as proved by him hiding between the ropes early on. Run and arm drag by Kidman show that he isn't wasting any time though, and that's an early powder for CG. Atomic drop and clothesline followed by more stalling. Whip to the guardrail, that's far too common a spot these days, and our Chavo wants a handshake. It doesn't work, but Kidman's kicks definitely do. He lands on the apron from a backdrop, does Chavo, and now we have a slugfest on said hardest part of the ring, which Guerrero wins. Nice brain buster for a two, and the crowd are not really into this. Snap mare and rear chin lock are, I would wager, an unlikely way to try and bring them back, and so it proves. A suicide somersault over the top rope is more successful though. He drives the knee across the throat for an imaginative cover, but only gets a one. He hits Buckle on a charge, and Kidman gets a crossbody for a near fall. He takes a tilt to while backbreaker, but back drops out of a pile driver. Chavo does get a belly to back though, but gets met with a drop kick. Neither guy is getting much of a foothold in this one, as Chavo is back on offense with a top rope runner. It's only a two though, as is Kidman's sit out powerbomb. See? Very 50 50 this match. He then knocks out Kidman's legs on the buckle and DDTs him from the top. No three count though, because he stupidly tries a powerbomb next, and with Kidman, you know what happens there. You end up eating a pin after a shooting star press just a few seconds later. I think it kind of sheds light on WCW's current lack of depth in the cruiserweight division, which really is what Kidman, Eddie, Malenko's kind of drifting off from it, but Ray, Hoovy, Psychosis, those are that seems to be your main core. So you're bringing in a guy like Chavo, who for the most part hasn't been in the division uh, competing in a lot of matches but is obviously a good worker. He knows what he's doing, but I, I, th I think the, there was a lack of interest. And I'm going to use a pretty bad comparison. You can probably compare it to when Jericho last year fought Prince Iakea. Like, no one really wanted to fucking see that. Obviously, this is a better match. Chavo is far better than Iakea. But if it's not in that core four or five guys along with Kidman, I don't think people are going to be as enthusiastic about it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it wasn't even overly competitive. I kind of felt like Kidman was getting a enhanced match here to make him look even better. Chavo got a few moments in there. But for the most part, it was just you knew Kidman was going over and he was going to hit his big moves. Uh, you know, comparing it to the first two matches, it's a letdown, but it's not one where I'm sitting here saying back to typical WCW. It's a solid, a solid encounter. You would just maybe expect more from Cruiserweights. What did you think of this one, Billy? <laughs> uh, pretty much what Bob said. It was it was a solid match. Uh, both men seemed to work pretty hard, and uh, the crowd just really didn't seem to be into anything until the finish, which was the shooting star press was the most over thing uh, in this entire match. Um, I, I just I don't really know where they're going forward with the cruiserweight division. Obviously. They've got it on Kidman at the minute. He's having a lot of good matches on the undercard. Someone is going to get transferred to someone else, and they're probably going to have some good matches on the undercard. But they're sort of moved, um, like guys like Mysterio and Malenko, away from the belt, and for good reason because they've sort of outgrown that division now. And it's just sort of, well, who is the next wave of cruiserweights that they've got to to bring in to, you know. Uh, make this uh, division a little bit more interesting. What is it about Charvo that stops me really liking him? 
He can talk. He can play face or heel, both, very, very comfortably. He's got an excellent moveset. He proved that here, some of the things he was busting out. And he was nailing them 100%. No air showing. Perfect. But he just bores the hell out of me. I don't even think it's his fault. It's Maybe it's that thing you've only got a first chance to make. One chance to make a first impression. And when I first saw him at the end of 96, he was just like condensed soup. And even though he has tried to improve in many facets of what make a professional wrestler in North America, I'm still just, I'm seeing it, but I'm not getting it. And that's rather unfortunate because he's good. And in situations like this, let's have the matches against somebody like Kidman, who's been near revelatory since September. This was probably pound for pound the match of the night, really. But I just think Charvo's always going to be the dreaded good hand. He's not somebody you're ever really going to elevate, even though I'm not sure he lacks charisma. I, I read a review after this saying, oh, Charvo's a charisma vacuum. I don't think he is, but I can see why people say it. Now, it's a real dichotomy here, and it's a hard square to circle. Anybody listening, where you stand on the great Chavo Guerrero debate, which has lasted for about two minutes so far, then please get in touch. Be yeah, an excellent match here again. Kidman can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned right now. Deservedly still the Cruiserweight champion. I hope he holds it for a long time. I'm concerned that he's running out of opponents. There is this guy, Blitzkrieg, who's had a couple of matches on Nitro. Looks the business, I must say. So I reckon they two could do something when they hook it up. But if Kidman gets past him, he isn't, again, going to ascend to any greater heights. That's the one problem. But for now, though, let's worry about that when we get there. If he can keep having great matches with great opponents, let's save the cynicism this time. <laughs> and bring it in spades back here for our tag team title match for the Bacon Belts. Hennig and Wyndham versus Horseman. This was the final of a very convoluted tournament where you could lose your first match and still go through like a year seven rugby into tutor group plate tournament or something like that. I think the official word is repechage. But anyway, this was the final. And if the Horseman won, there would be another match straight afterwards. I don't know. Anyway, Milenko and an increasingly bulky Barry start proceedings off, albeit very slowly. Drop toe hold by Dean, but Wyndham rolls into a hammerlock. Very nice. More waiting around until Hennig and Benoit are tagged in. Early chop battle, and there can only be one winner there, and this is a test of strength. Benoit hooks, into what, hooks him into what the commentators call a straight jacket until they decide to just slap it out. The wrestlers, that is, not the commentators. Super Ball for Super Brawl Hennig Cell off a knife edge, and our both originals are back in. Snap kick by Milenko sends Wyndham down, then the heels botch a tag, so Baza carries on. Four punch in the corner, and a good old throw sends Dino down. Ropey double clothesline that showed a lot of air, and that's a two count. Milenko and Hennig just rock on the mat for a while, until Benoit picks things back up. Hennig's selling is very spotty here. Big backbreaker, but Wyndham breaks it up. Snap suplex for a two. Clothesline in the corner, and a choice belly to back by Milenko, but again Wyndham stops it. Crowd are not into this one either. Benoit calls for the headbutt, and he hits it. Again, though, Barry makes the save. Very delayed pin by Milenko for a long two. He then just dumps Hennig over the top, but thankfully that's not a DQ anymore. Nor is a low blow, if the ref doesn't see it. From that, Hennig makes a tag, and the pace of this one is all wrong. Gut wrench slam, and our Benoit saves. 
everyone just slugs it out until a nonchalant cover for two. Snot a rocket by Chris and another clothesline, and I'm sensing he's getting frustrated here, legitimately. Weak inverted atomic drop by Hennig, and even Tony notices that he's pretty much done. Barry, though, can still hit a superplex with the best of them, but Malenko cuts off the pin. Double suplex for two, and everyone is just surprised the match is still going on at this point. Snapmare and neck snap by Kurt, and a jackknife pin gets another near fall. Lovely 180 belly to back by Wyndham, and another save. Cracking German suplex by Benoit to perfect, but both men are down. Malenko in with a nice turn of pace going to town on both guys. Benoit sees the Hennig, and now, after a bit of a battle, he gets on the cloverleaf and dares for submission. So, that ties it up in the tournament final at one apiece. So, we get the decider. You had lengthy notes for the previous match, and I've spared, spared nothing for you, dear listener, on this one either. So, sit tight. Barry Wyndham takes off his belt, chokes out Di Malenko, and wins. So there we go. Hennig and Wyndham take the tournament final 2-1, and they have the new belts. Phew. Guys, we got there in the end. Um, they seem to gel quite well. I was a bit worried, like to begin with, that uh, Barry Wyndham, who you rightly called Bulky Wyndham, that's his uh, great nickname there, right? <laughs> um, I was a bit worried that he might not be able to carry his own, but he sort of um, seemed to be up for this one. Um, obviously, trying to prove everyone that. Uh, there is life after the stalker and being a shit blackjack. So there was that. And, you know, Kurt Henning, like you said, some of his selling was a bit spotty. I totally agree with that. But this was definitely his best performance in WCW by, by a long shot. And life after being a widowmaker, let's be <laughs> How could we forget the widowmaker? Oh, good old WCW, let me tell you. Hey. Just a matter of time before we got there. This match goes nearly double the length of anything we get on this show today. Or this time around. Nearly double. That's just incredible, especially when you look at all the names on here. Uh, but no, it incredibly slow, plotting, not interested in it. And again, if you compare this to the first three matches, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, there, was, there was a couple of bad misses. There was one where Malenko was supposed to break up the count and Wyndham had to take himself off like he got pulled off. And he looked at Malenko like, what are you doing? And Malenko didn't even leave the apron yet. So that just looked really bad to me. Uh, the second fall, uh, I'm right there uh, with the consensus here. I liked it. I liked the idea of just choking him out behind the referee and you get a quick pinfall. Usually in tournaments, at least in my opinion, the heel should always win. That way the babyface got a chase. So Benoit and Malenko go on the chase for Henning and Wyndham. I'm I'm in favor of that, but it just doesn't need to go, you know, twenty almost twenty one minutes. It doesn't need to go that type of length to where we got here because it was mostly just brawling and a couple of decent moves. But it just dragged. It felt, for me, it just dragged on way too much. And uh, I mean, I don't I don't hate Henning and Wyndham as a tag team, and I'm I don't even know if, if Wyndham is in the worst shape of his career. I mean, back when he was the stalker or whatever. That was pretty bad Barry Windham shape. So he looks in better shape compared to the fall of 96 or whenever that was. Bob, you've made this point in other places and I'm going to come back to you on it now. And I am ready for the scores of hate mail we're going to get. (laughs) 
we'll probably get one letter on is Charbo Guerrero any good to the 10,000 we're going to get on this one. But Kurt Hennig, I'm not going to say he's overrated. I don't like the word for starters, as long-time listeners will know. But is it fair to say that sometimes he's just a bit overvalued? What do you think? Oh, my God. You know, the amount of times I've had this conversation with people, it, it blows my mind. I I like Kurt Henning as a performer. I liked him as Mr. Perfect. But when it comes to having great matches, I, it's, it doesn't happen with me. Uh, off the top of my head, he's had two good matches, but it's really with the same person, Bret Hart, which was, you know, at this you know, almost 10 years ago. Uh, you know, like the matches with Flair, really disappointing matches. Uh, you know, Hogan back in WWF, pretty disappointing stuff. Uh, he doesn't, to me, he doesn't really deliver. And I've said it, I think I've said it here too, where same thing with Ric Flair. I, I'm not really a big flair guy because of lack of, you know, I guess moves or, or skill. Like Henning and flair to me are very similar. Like, Oh, we'll chop you and we'll play to the crowd and I'll hit my finish. There's not much depth to it. And I will, I don't think I've ever sat at home and been like, you know what? I'm going to watch a Kurt Henning match tonight. That it just doesn't happen. I, I wouldn't put him in a top tier in ring wise. And I've, and a lot of people disagree with me. I agree with you, Rory. I'm, I think we're on the same page here, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's just a guy for me that he just, he doesn't do anything for me. Oh, that's a good, solid mid card hand. Um, unfortunately, his body's sort of breaking down and he can't do. That's very fair these days. Yeah. He can't, he can't do what he used to be able to do. And, for people to turn around and talk about how um, he's like an uncrowned WWF champion, he should have won the WWF title, blah, 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 all of that. Not not really. Kurt, like I said, he was a good, solid mid-card hand and he, he could do lots of crazy bumps in WCW. Unfortunately, he just cannot do what he used to be able to do. But I, I do feel like here that he generally did put in a... <laughs> he tried... For once, he wasn't just phoning it in for his seven figures. Yeah, I'm with you both on this. I like Hennig. I like him a lot. But I do think he is bumped up a little bit by the fact that when he joined the WWF in 88, his character was, in essence, a great wrestler. A perfect wrestler, if you will. At a time where work rate, in-ring ability... Not really the modus operandi during the cartoon era, so he probably looked a bit better than he actually was. <laughs> you know, Collis to the Mast, I haven't seen much of his AWA stuff, so hold the phone on that one, listeners, okay? I haven't seen it. I might come back and change my opinion. I think now, though, he's certainly worse than he was even then. Very slow. The selling, as I said, is very spotty. And if he hasn't got the next snap, he hasn't got much more these days. But this match, too long. Too long for the guys to go. 20 minutes was a joke. And I sensed that Benoit in particular was getting really quite angry with the way things were going. And so he was getting nothing out of Hennig and getting little out of Wyndham. And 
I think they were feeling, Benoit certainly and possibly Malenko as well, that this match was a bit of a waste of their talents. You could tell this particular story in half the time. Yes, I liked the total ending with Barry Windham just being a complete dick. You know, why don't more people do that? The ref's not looking. I'm going to choke my opponents. He ain't kicking out of that one. Again, standards and practices, I guess. Yes, 20 minutes, far too long for what one of the teams here had to offer. But I do like the idea of them as heel champions being chased. And hopefully there will be a successful chase very, very soon. And pacing be damned, because we have another tag team match. The Outsiders versus Conan and Rey Mysterio. If the Outsiders win, Rey has to remove his mask. If the babyfaces win, Elizabeth will have to shave her head, of course. Um, so then, Heenan chooses this moment after two and a half years to tell us he doesn't understand the Lucha Libre concept. And Mike Tanay gets on his case and then some at that, sounding legitimately pissed off. Heenan just goes on and on and on, and then Tony outright tells him to shut up. There's no doubt at all that Heenan turned up. Sunned up refreshed to this show, and the commentary team reached the end of their tether. He kind of gets a bit quiet from now until the end of the show, because he knows he's fucked up. Disappointing. But as we all know, this Bobby Heenan is not the Bobby Heenan of even 94, let alone 92-93. Anyway, the match. To the ring with Hall and Ray. And of course the former outpowers Mysterio with embarrassing ease. Nice arm drag though, and a drop toe hold and a springboard rocker dropper, and a seated senton, and a shot to Big Sexy, and a sentence, not beginning with and. Ray has come to party here. But then he, of course, goes for a crossbody on Hall, and we all know how that one ends. Here comes Nash. Ray tries a sunset flip, but, you know, really. That's enough work for Nash, who tags straight back out. <laughs> working smart, not working hard, baby. Hall in, and calls for the edge, but Ray fights out, and dives right into the tag. Take K-Dog comes in for some serious payback on both outsiders, and that works for a while until the NWO hit high-low, of all things. Nash is back after that deserved breather for the stupid framing elbow thing and the stupid big boot thing. Kevin Nash is really stupid. And he's the booker. These things might be linked. Conan agrees as he attacks both guys again, and then he and Hall take a double clothesline. Both teams tag, and Ray with springboard drop kicks all over the place. He then vaults off Nash to hit Hall with one, and I tell you what, the faces could just have this. Luger, though, comes to the rescue. With that going on, Ray with a springboard moonsault, which, and I quote, catches Nash in the face knee first. It really, really didn't. But the ref is distracted by Liz. So Hall is in for the edge, and you know the rest. So Liz's hair, on her head, remains intact. And Ray's mask has to come off. With extreme reluctance, it does. And of course, needless to say, he looks about eight. Well, I just want to say, if anybody watching this match thought that Elizabeth was going to get her hair shaved off, I have a timeshare I'd love to sell to you, and uh, it's a great deal, so just hit me up on that. There was never a doubt in my mind as to how this was going to go. Nash and Hall buddies having fun, taking care of two undercard baby faces that are on the rise. The fans seem to love Conan. Rey Mysterio is you know, he's been great since he came in in 96. The fans are always cheering for him. His main draw, and I shouldn't say main draw, but a big part of his appearance and allure is his mask, as it is with many of the luchadors. So naturally, you want to take that away. It makes sense. It's cool. Uh, the match was okay. Uh, the finish, 
I mean, you can't have Ray and, and Conan go over probably, but it, the stipulation I don't like. I would have just had them lose and then just call it a day. Um, I mean, Ray looked pretty good. I thought it was ridiculous that Nash tried to play it off like Ray Mysterio was ugly. I mean, he's obviously he's a, a good-looking guy. Uh, if I had a daughter and she brought him home, I wouldn't be threatened by him. I'd be like, all right, I'll see you at nine, you know, or whatever the case is. But um, yeah, and just I can see why they put the uh, the tag title match before this party because Nash wanted to look like that they were a bigger deal and and more enjoyable because the crowd would probably fell asleep for twenty minutes prior. So I get the placement of it now that this has happened, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I wouldn't have done it. If you're going to ever take the mask off of Ray, I would have done it at Havoc 97 then with, with Eddie in that, you know, fabulous match. I just, you probably should just kept the mask on him and, and maybe try to make money off of it. And uh, But I guess WCW doesn't know how to create merchandise opportunities. <sighs> All right, let's uh, begin, shall we? Yeah, pretty much like Bob, I never believed Liz was ever going to lose her hair now. If Kevin Nash had put his hair on the line, you don't believe that he's going to lose his hair. Same with Scott Hall. Uh, or Lex Luger. Vir- Virgil could have put his hair on the line and you wouldn't have thought <laughs> they would lose. It's just not believable. And If you take Kevin Nash's hair, you lose one of his moves. So that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> this is never going to happen in a million years. It's a shame. It really is. Because Mysterio Conan... We're generally really over here. Obviously, Mysterio's from California, so get some sort of a home welcome and everything. Uh, but we just no one believed in the fact that Liz was losing her hair, and the the finish was just so bloody obvious. And it was a genuine shame because the match was pretty decent. You know, Kev was quote unquote selling for. Ray Mysterio and so was Scott Hall. They were generally trying to make him look like a big deal. And for a second, for a brief second, you believed that maybe Mysterio could pull off the big win. But then you think, hold on a minute, this is Kevin Nash and he's got the book and everything else. So, yep, that's probably not happening. And, of course, they end up winning the cheap way, which... That's an NWO way, isn't it, really? It happens all the time in NWO matches. And it just made me a little bit angry because what is, what's the problem with sending Conan and Mysterio over the outsiders? Would Kevin Nash and Scott Hall lose anything from losing to those guys? You know, it would probably elevate Ray and Conan as well, who are generally, like I keep saying, they're generally quite over. Right. <laughs> The fact that they unmasked Ray Mysterio, who, Roy, you said you look like an eight-year-old. In my notes, I've got where well, he looks like about, looks like a 15-year-old, basically. There's no marketability, marketability, an easy word for me to say, isn't it? Have you been drinking, Billy? Uh, yes, I have been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> marketability <laughs> of Ray Mysterio. You know, that is... The kids generally like buying the masks at the merch table. Not that there is many of more NWO t-shirts than there is <laughs> masks for sale. So I just have to wonder, what's this going to do for Ray Mysterio? Now he looks like a 
15-year-old child and he's lost to Nation Hall. And, but what is Eric Bischoff's problem with luchadors? I just don't understand it. It's like he did the same to Juventud Guerrero last year and he was promised a big push uh, once losing his mask. Well, his big push is he's back on the low end of the card and not on pay-per-views anymore. So he's, that's what's going to happen to Ray. And it's, it's, it's a genuine shame that this has all transpired. And I think it's a bunch of bullshit, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, if Kevin Nash hadn't been in charge, then I might just might have bought the babyfaces winning here. They were allowed to get a lot more shine than I thought they were going to. But of course, normal service was resumed before too long. That big spot was meant to be the moonsault, catching Nash in the chops. Absolutely nowhere near. It was as if he'd never tried to sell a moonsault before. <laughs> Add your own jokes there. Hey, he left his feet. Kevin Nash actually took a bump. And I should just say as well, on the Nitro after this, Rey Mysterio actually defeated Kevin Nash in a match, which is clearly, clearly, clearly Nash's way of saying, hey, I'll let myself be beaten when the time is right, but you know and I know it will count for nothing. I say, he lost in two minutes, the referee applied a fairly quick count, all Ray did was basically just fall on him from a jackknife attempt, and he ran out of the ring, no chance to celebrate, and then moved on to the next segment. Now, Kevin Nash, I'm sure, has conveniently already forgotten that match already took place. We, dear listener, are trying to remind you that it did, but don't expect it to mean much. But this match was quite good, Three out of the four people were up for it. You know who wasn't. It sounds like I hate Kevin Nash. I wonder why. But we all knew that the NWO deep down were really, really going to win this one. But Ray losing his mask. Oh, WCW. Don't do it again. It worked with Hooventude when he took his off. And I think his career in World Championship Wrestling has gone from strength to strength since then. But that's exception rather than rule stuff. Now, don't mess around with this. Now, the mask in Mexican wrestling, it's imbued with magical powers in some people's minds. Now, El Santo, when he died in 1984, he was buried in his mask, for goodness sake. That's how important it is. Don't just treat it like a prop. Apparently, Rey Mysterio, as I say, he played reluctant, played a reluctant character on screen. He was very reluctant off screen as well. And another point as well, to bear in mind, in the Lucha Libre world, but if you do, for whatever reason, lose your mask, putting it back on is then a bit of a no-no. It's like, you know, you've left the party, you're not coming back. So be very careful, WCW. Be very, very careful. How often per show do I say those words? WCW, be careful. Does nobody listen to me on this thing? I don't know. Scott Steiner is here, and he pulls a lovely lady out of the crowd. If you've got a woman I want, I'm going to take her, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's us told. DDP follows, and he is not here to play. He is straight into it with relentless punches, and I love that. Fuck the collar and elbow tie-up nonsense. A good old kick or two to the gut, and then Steiner with a double leg and more punches. That's what we want. Then DDP turns him around into the same. You get it out your system, fellas. They spill outside, and Steiner fights his way back in, and blocks Paige off for a while, until he forearms his way in. Spinning neckbreaker, and here comes Buff. We didn't need that. DDP gets caught between the two of them, but he fends them both off for a while until Buff hits him from behind and Al Steiner has the advantage. Hard shots and no missing. Big clothesline, but Page is up at two. Bagwell with standard heel stuff with the refs back turned and then DDP gets hung in the old tree of woe. Not much to actually report here for a while as Steiner just holds Page down to the mat, but for this sort of match, that's okay. 
Surge of adrenaline by Page, but a belly to belly puts Page to that. Two counts again. Desperation roll up by Dallas, scores two. Bagwell distracts the ref, so Steiner hits Page in the back with a chair. Here's Tony on commentary. The ref had to hear that. Logic, Tony, logic. DDP fights off the recliner, and then Bagwell cuts off the turnbuckle pads. Robinson sees this, and then sends him to the back. DDP clothesline Scott over the top, and bolts off on top of him. Whipped to the steps though by Scott, but ref won't let him use the chair this time. Instead he runs all round the outside, only to be met by a diving clothesline by Page. He tries to get back in, but Steiner crotches him on the top rope, and there's the Frankensteiner off the top. Woof. Thankfully, this was a rather safe version of it. Or as safe as you can be with Scott Steiner doing it to you. Two counts only, and both men are down again. Page up first and drapes the arm, but no sir. The buckle is still exposed, so Steiner rams Page into it head first, then back first, repeatedly. He goes for the recliner again, but Page really fights it. After a struggle it goes on, and after a great camera shot showing DDP looking all but dead, the arm drops three times and Steiner gets the win. Your wife is coming to Papa, and DDP does a stretcher job afterwards. Boys, that's more like it. It was good to see both men showing some fire. You know, this is a genuine grudge match after everything that's happened on TV. Um, I didn't like the stuff with Buff Bagwell. It turned into a bit of an overbooked mess. But then, why am I shocked? This is WCW and they're NWO members, so this shit has got to happen. The, the only thing that... I suppose, like, the only thing that bothered me, really, at this point, we just had, like, three hills go over in a row. And I would start thinking, okay, so what? We've had three hills going over. Obviously, we've got to go in the next match. There's going to be a babyface win and then another babyface win. and Hopefully, another babyface win because this is all getting a bit too much. They're putting me far too down at this point. What do you reckon, Bob? Well, this felt like a fight, and it's exactly what it needed to to be. I watching it, I was hoping don't start off with a lockup or don't start off with a hammer lock or whatever. And thankfully, they didn't because they just they just went right after each other. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was probably the best match on the show to this point, and even following. I don't think anything really comes close to this. Uh, Steiner came across ruthless, aggressive. I mean, he's wanting to he wants to fuck another guy's wife. I mean, I guess that's bound to happen <laughs> ddp's desperately trying to hang on to a girl that's way out of his league and scott steiner is probably you know suitable for her so he's like no no i need her um he's also like what 40 something at this point so it doesn't even matter there but uh i really enjoyed it the finish it just felt raw you know it didn't feel like a wrestling finish like he's just choking him out and and ddp sold it really well he looked like he had died and I feel this should, if I'm Kimberly tomorrow night, the following night on Nitro, I'm like, fuck you, DP. You didn't even save me. This guy killed you. I'm with him now. Like, that's what I'm sure he threw me out of a car, but you know, you forget and uh, you move on. So, uh, yeah, no, I thought this was a, I thought it was a really great match. It felt like a fight, exactly what it needed to be. And it's probably something I would watch again if I wanted to see a guy steal another guy's wife. Yes, a fight, a proper fight. I mean, just look what Scott Steiner has done to Paige's wife over the last few weeks. We talked about it earlier. And now Paige has got a legal chance to get his hands on him. Of course, he isn't going to collar an elbow tie-up. Just try and end the fucker. 
You know, do what Goldust and Val Venus didn't do until far too late in their feud. Now's your chance, take it. And Steiner was ready for him. He whipped him around into punches of his own. It's great. It's a pure fist fight with three wrestling moves in the whole thing. And one of those was the Frankensteiner again. Scott, now there's a bit more of you to go around. Please watch yourself going for that one. Luckily, they did this one very safely. DDP landed pretty much back first, which was good. But just a fucking scrap. And that ending shot of DDP there, his lips all contorted, his eyes shooting into the back of his head, locked in the recliner, but he will not give up. The honour of his wife is too great. And this is a situation where losing a match does not mean that you are being buried or being dispensed with or being dumped down the card. Now, I've seen people online saying, oh, this is it for DDP now. He's just a mid-carder. Not necessarily. He lost this match, but he did not lose the war. He did not say those words, I quit, if you will. Go back to our January shows for the reference there, which I'm sure you already know. But yeah, important win for Steiner. Page loses nothing in this one. And just a good old-fashioned barn burner for real legitimate reasons. And I, for one, loved myself a bit of that. Piper versus Hall for the US title. I would love myself very little of this. Stare down to start until Piper puts his kilt over Hall's face and uses that as a weapon. The tie does the same thing and the ref lets it all go. Piper with some jabs and Hall hits the deck very early. Slow neck breaker for a one count. But Hall is up into a wrist lock. Shot to the eyes by Roddy. Then an atomic drop. Then one of the inverted variety. And another eye poke. Which it must be said the fans quite liked. Not just Eric. Outside, he gives Disco the same treatment, but Hall then takes the reins right in front of a WWF rules sign. Product placement. Piper is already on rubber legs and dares Scott to hit him. He's only happy to oblige, but do we really need another tree of woe spot? Agents, guys. Agents. We've got one, though. He struggles to get up out of it, which might well have been a shoot, and now it's Wilbur Schneider time. Disco lends a hand for a while until the hip toss out of it. Nash tries to get in, yeah, but you tried really hard. And all the distraction allows Hall to get on the flare pin for a three and the US title in a sequence that seemed extremely rushed. Post-match, Piper refuses to give up the belt. The outsiders beat on him until he bails and says something through a muffled mic. I don't know what it was. He then has a kind of tug of war with Disco over the belt and just lets go. So that's that. Hmm. Oh my God. I mean... This it goes like nine minutes or something, or almost nine minutes. I'm just I'm dumbfounded. I really am. I, I'm glad Bret Hart wasn't involved with this because he probably would have just retired if he had to work this type of match with Piper. Hall was probably drunk, so he, he didn't even know what was going on. If I had to, if I had to guess, uh, the finish, like what? This came out of nowhere. He just okay. Now I guess we're done. We're going home. Um. No, it felt like there was no structure to it, just thrown together, which it probably literally was just thrown together. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I wasn't even excited for this match to begin with. I'm not a big Piper fan anyway, and this kind of cements it. Um, probably shouldn't have the United States Championship on Roddy Piper to begin with, but I'm not the booker. Um, yeah, I'm, I was just as soon as it was over, I I was glad I took a shot at Jack Daniels and I kept on going. Ah, so yeah, Scott Hall's the best worker in the world, is he? That's what Kevin Nash is saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So if he was the best worker in the world, surely he'd be able to get a watchable match out of Piper. I know Piper's over the hill and uh, his best days have uh, certainly passed him. Let's be honest. No, this this was fucking terrible. Um, it was slow. It was plodding. There was, like Bob said, there was really no structure to it. Uh, it was short, but you felt those nine minutes and you felt them through the entire time because it was just, it, it, it was, it was a mess. And I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> I really don't. But then this is WCW. Yeah. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. In the news, I said that Kevin Nash thinks that Scott Hall is the best worker in the world. Boy, did he prove it here by dragging no stars at all out of Rowdy Roddy Piper. This was dreadful. Piper is done. I'm almost past the stage where I'm feeling sorry for him in the ring now, though. It's He's got to give it up. Has to give it up. He had nothing in the match against Brett where he won the belt, and he had nothing here. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Neckbreakers taking an eternity. No rubber leg spots after three minutes. Piss-weak punches. Rushed finish. I don't think that was the original plan. Piper sort of giving up the belt at the end without even really trying to keep it. I, I don't know. It's all a mess. I don't even know why they keep Piper around in the ring. Oh yeah, I, I do really because maybe Hogan can beat him again one more day. Or Hall's just playing that by proxy at this point. I'm struggling to articulate over this match. It just fucking sucks. I just want to keep it that simple. Match fucking sucks. Okay? Analysis be damned on this occasion. Okay. Home straight. Bam Bam Bigelow versus Goldberg. Circling to start and some jawing too. But for me, it seems a bit forced at the moment. We get the rotting stag lockup and there's no winner there. Same again off a standard lockup. Shoulder charge by Bam Bam does nothing, but a slam to him definitely does. That one eats up a whole minute with outside of the ring selling. Big shoulder block by Bill and a slam into a cross arm breaker, but Bam Bam easily gets to the ropes. Standing drop kick, no Bill, drop that one, then a clothesline and Bammer is outside. He pulls Goldberg down though, easily, then strikes low for a while. Kicks to the knee and some kind of leg bar offer little in the way of interest from the crowd, the latter going on for a long time. Then Goldberg just pushes them off in a poor transition and takes a few headbutts, and then we all take a headlock. Mm-hmm. Yet more headbutts and another headlock, because we loved it so much last time. Side suplex countered by Bill, but he just gets slammed again. Diving headbutt by Bigelow, and Bill just rolls off the cover. What's going on? Bam Bam goes for the moonsault, but he quickly gets cut off. Goldberg goes for the spear, but Bam Bam sees it coming and bails. However, when Bam Bam gets back in the ring, he forgets that the spear is one of Bill's moves, and then he just gets it. Eh, that was a mess. Bill teases the jackhammer, but goes for a kick and another spear instead, to wear Bam Bam down. I can get on board with that. He then goes through with the jackhammer, and that secures him the win. Fellas. Well, I get why WCW have started to prolong Goldberg's matches. I I do get it. They obviously feel that he needs to have longer matches and he'll become a better performer for it. But do you really need Bill Goldberg to be in longer matches? Really? What worked was he'd go out there in 90 seconds, he'd do the spear, Jack Omar, one, two, three. That got over really, really well. You give him a 10-minute match or anything longer, he's getting lost out there and he just seems like he's got his selected spots that he can do. And 
everyone else sort of has to work around that to be able to, to prolong the match for him. I did feel sort of sorry for Bam Bam. You know, he has come in and this feud has really done nothing for him and <laughs> it hasn't been handled very well at all by WCW. You can say, in fact, it's been handled really poorly. And the match itself was just what they put together in the 10 minutes. They could have easily done in two. What happens next for Bill Goldberg? I would assume he's got to have a match with Kevin Nash because they've got to give him his win back or maybe he moves into a feud with Hulk Hogan who, or Ric Flair. Um, I just don't know what you do next with Bill Goldberg. It's He's run through Bam Bam now and I can only really see the, the match with Nash happening and then in the summer, maybe they decide to put the title back on him. I, I just don't know. I, I don't think even WCW know where they're going with their booking plans for the next six months, Rory. Well, that I definitely agree with. But again, I wonder if Goldberg, the damage has already been done after last month's debacle. Uh, the match was, I mean, just it was just there. Bigelow isn't really able to carry an interesting match, I don't think. When your primary move is a headbutt, um, yeah, you're not going to captivate me there very well. I can see the attempt here. I mean, Bigelow, uh, for his run in ECW, was pretty impressive. I mean, his feud with Taz and all those things, he felt like a monster there. And they tried to relay that over into WCW. And I think with the amount of restrictions in regard to, you know, this guy can't use weapons at his volition and all these other things. So he had to actually wrestle. And he went back to, oh, I'll just do my headbutt thing all the time. It just It didn't translate very well. This did not need to go nearly 12 minutes. Could have done this in five. If the attempt is to maintain Bigelow's heel heat or what have you, you probably don't even have this match here. You drag it out a little bit longer, get Bigelow some momentum. Because now right here, where does Bigelow, where does Bigelow go from here? Nowhere. He's going down. You can't build him back up and or anything. It, it would take a significant amount of time to do that. So he's he's done as a upper mid card guy. He's a mid card guy moving forward. There's no question about it. As for Goldberg, um, the guy should never have lost the WCW World Championship as Dark K98. There's no doubt about it. Goldberg also should not have been unable to cross the street uh, in a, of a reasonable time for a rematch on January 4th. Exactly. So where you go from here is he needs to burn through NWO guys, and I would be putting the belt on him sooner rather than later. So I'm thinking about, like, Great American Bash, 99. Just put the belt on him. Have him burn through Nash, uh, you know, next month or, you know, Slamboree or something, and just get to Hogan as soon as you can at um, Great American Bash, 99, just kind of go into the summer with Goldberg as your champion, and that's probably the way that it should be. Um, but this match, it just it was just there. It just went way too long for me. Um, but again, I mean, I guess I can try to appreciate the effort that they were going for, but just it didn't connect for me. Okay, at least Goldberg won. But this is not the way to rehabilitate him. Going 10 minutes with a Bam Bam Bigelow, who I don't think is anywhere near where he was even a year ago in ECW. He's gained a bit more weight. He's spending a lot of time in these matches in headlocks. No, he did it last month against Roth. He did it here again, just killing matches stone dead. There seems to be a lot of excitement when he joined WCW. But 
either he's not being allowed to show it or he just can't go 10-11 matches, 10-11 minutes in matches. But as for Goldberg beating this guy there, nah, it's, okay, second from the top on the pay-per-view, but a million miles away from where he was nah, when he was made to look like an idiot, not being able to cross the streets last month. <clears throat> that a week after the way he lost the world title. He doesn't seem bothered with it, does he? Bill Goldberg's character should be incandescent with rage. He should be bursting into matches, beating up guys, face or heel. He should be pissed off as fuck at the way his title was stolen from him, the way he was tried to be framed as an aggravated assaulter, and yet he's just shrugging it off, and he's quite happy, ambling along in the upper mid-card, facing guys like Bam Bam Bigelow. A pissed-off Bill Goldberg, there is money in that character. But... I said it after he'd lost the title on our review show, and I said it again last month. It's as if they want to call him off to the point where he's little more than just a special attraction. I don't think they're going to be able to shove lightning back in the bottle again. You know, you can't give him another winning streak, for example. There are other slight character traits which you can use to build him back up for maybe a big match against the WCW champion. But do you really think that Hogan wants another match with him that isn't going to end? Yeah, I don't, again, I don't need to complete that sentence. If at any point this year we get Hogan versus Goldberg for the world title, you know how it's going to end. Because that is what works for he, brother. They fucked with the unfuckable. And I don't think anytime soon they're going to be able to repair it. But then, do they, and you know who I mean by they, really want to? Hollywood Hulk Hogan defending the world title against that Ric Flair is our main event in February 1999. The more things change, the more things change. They go right into the international straight off the bat and it's Hogan who wins out on two straight occasions. Hammerlock by Flair and a very big chop and this all seems like something I have seen before. Knee and rights by Hogan and a back body drop and a corner clothesline and off that we get the flare flop. Two count there. Hogan with some chops of his own, but the real deal takes over before too long. Snapmare and a shin drop, but Hogan back with a clothesline. Irish whip, and already Flair hits the floor on it, rather than run across the apron. Curious. Hulk with a chair shot on the outside, when a crappy looking second, and suddenly both guys are slugging it out. Flair has actually bladed from these shots, by the way. And then Hulk with a suplex on the outside. Back in now. And Flair's cut is actually the full WrestleMania 8 special. Ah, what could have been, eh? Hulk with some punches, but Rick fires up. But as so often today, it meets with a meek crowd response at best. And he can only get in two punches before Hogan goes for the weightlifting belt. Remember what I said earlier about Heenan generally keeping it quiet? Sadly, he pipes up to call this the biggest pay-per-view in history. Back to your brown paper bag, man. Hogan wails away with a belt, and this is getting a bit much now. Big shot to the head, but Flair turns him around. Flair bounces up from some punches, and there's the dirtiest player in the game, low blow. He then takes off Hulk's belt and administers a bit of payback. Bites in the corner, and we get the Hogan flop. A lady in a red dress, yes, it's the one we saw in the hotel room earlier, storms to the ring and hollers at Flair. She tries to slap him a couple of times, but Rick still has control of the match. 10 punches in the corner. The lady is still here, and here's Heenan. What a view of the ring. 
<laughs> That's like one of my lines. And I'm a la no, 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 I'm not. Vertical suplex and kick out with authority by Hogan. Remember, he is supposed to be a heel. He then elbows the ref, and there's the big boot. Slam, but he misses the leg drop. And here comes somebody in a mask, complete with NWO shirt. Heenan calls it as Bischoff. And let's face it, when has Bobby ever got a mystery man situation wrong in the past? Whoever he is, he just zaps Flair with the shock stick, allowing for Hogan to get an easy, easy pin. The lady then snogs the man in the mask, and she takes it off him, and it turns out to be... David Flair. Yes, he has betrayed his father. Gents, your thoughts on this match, why it is a main event in February 99, and the big turn at the end. Yeah, so someone explained to me how David Flair could land a girl like Tori. You have a guy like Scott Steiner struggling to convince Kimberly to date him, and then this this freaking goon is able to land a smoking hot lady. I don't whatever. I mean, if you ever needed to have an argument with somebody saying, hey, is wrestling scripted? Example A right here. That's no way real life is that ever going to happen. As for his insertion into the angle or main event, whichever you want to call it, to me, it makes no sense. I mean, this is the same guy that got whipped with a weight belt. I don't even know how many dozens, at least a dozen times the previous month. So now you're suddenly thinking, all right, cool. Well, he likes me, so let's be friends. No, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. I thought they were messing with us when they decided, let's go do another stun gun finish because that got such rave reviews at Starcade 98. So let's just wait a month, do it again, because that's great business. Again, just a ludicrous mindset here. This Hogan and Flair have wrestled probably 50 times on television over the course of five years. That's probably being generous, too. It's probably more like 100. It's gotten to the point of which, for me, if you were to have Flair against Sting, you could just close your eyes, probably guess what's going to happen, and that's what happens. So I didn't care for any of this. For Flair to not go over, considering everything that has happened in the last six months, is baffling to me. He, got, he gets pinned. This is the same guy that got beat up in a field for 15 minutes. He's had a heart attack. He lost the Bischoff, got his revenge off Bischoff, but he still can't beat Hogan. I, I'm getting upset. I shouldn't get upset. It's okay. It is blowing my mind of why they continue to do this. Yeah, I probably wouldn't even book this feud since Hogan had just won the belt. You I, insert somebody else in here as a throwaway. Put DDP here or something. Just drag it out a little bit longer, and you're going to get a better result. This seems like a rushed angle. It just, I, it's infuriating that they can't get the main event scene right here in WCW. The undercard seems to be steady and doing pretty well for itself, but main event has been struggling for the better part of a year. Like Flair is always good at doing a blade job, but it's unwarranted for anything that happened here. So you can't buy into that because the beating didn't justify it. And I mean, nothing exciting really happened. I mean, there's far better Hogan Flair matches to go watch than this one right here. So it's an ex I think this is an example of just going to the well one too many times because you're thinking Hogan Flair will draw and they probably did, but after seeing this, it's like, do I really need to see Hogan Flair ever again? And the answer is probably not. 
<laughs> oh god, yeah. Where where do you begin? Um, this is this was shockingly bad. This main event. Obviously, both guys are well up there in age, and you can sort of say, well, maybe they shouldn't be plodding around in the main events. Maybe it's time for someone else to step up. But obviously, that's not going to happen. So they threw together this feud. They sort of come out of nowhere, and I get why they decided to bleed everywhere. I do, because obviously, both of them knew that they had fuck all. <laughs> to put together during the match. They had nothing. They, they they had nothing. It was just, let's go from this spot to that spot. And it was all going to be about the finish, the big reveal. You know, here was me thinking the lady in red had been, you know, banging a cameraman for whatever reason, <laughs> which is clearly not. Uh, no, it's David Flair. Um, so, yeah, he's he's the big, big new big hill in the company. Um He's 19 years old. He's been wrestling, what, a couple of months? Not even that. He's <laughs> he's uh, looks lost out there most of the time. I feel sorry for him because he's been thrown into such a big spot and it's not going to work. He's not going to get over. Uh, he just doesn't look like a menacing hill that's with the hot woman uh, at all, anyway, whatsoever. I... The mind boggles. I don't, I don't understand why they've decided to do this, but it's the WCW main event scene, so this is what they've decided to serve us, and this is the shit that we're going to have to put up with <laughs> for the next couple of months. Okay, let's get the turn out of the way first. The one thing I, if not appreciated, at least took on board about this, is that it wasn't a complete swerve turn. Okay, David Flair has now been identified as the guy behind the camera. And we now know the person who Tory Wilson was accosting over the last two weeks on Nitro. On the go-home Nitro, the very last thing we saw was Scott Hall backstage with a shock stick in his hand, handing it to the guy behind the camera, saying, here you go, you know what to do. And six days later, here he is, helping out the NWO with said shock stick. So now we know that he has been... Okay, in the storyline, he might well have been brainwashed by the NWO, Honey trapped by Miss Tori Wilson? Perhaps. But it was at least an episodic storyline. It wasn't the kind of turn that I detest, where he's all happy, clappy, everything's fine, and just for no reason whatsoever, he joins the heel people. That did not happen here. They at least built up to it. I still don't think they've explained really why he turned on his dad, but he at least got there. And one more thing about David Flair. If you remember last month, we read from the sheets that um, he didn't really want to be involved in the wrestling business. Funnily enough now, considering who he's been written into a storyline with, he's quite happy carrying on with this pro wrestling business. I can't for the life of me think why. The match was not good though. Not not good. These two have had one good outing against each other, and that was at Bash at the Beach 94. Probably upper three stars stuff. The very best you're going to get was straight wrestling match between these two and that was nearly five years ago flair as we know is just the greatest hits but if you're a purist there's a lot less to enjoy and hogan is a terrible in-ring heel his offense is zip plus the fact he still really wants to be the babyface in there when i see him powering out of headlocks and easily kicking out of pinfalls and then mugging to the crowd and what have you 
It just takes you out of the moment for this guy, and it's fucking frustrating. Flair didn't want to help in this one. I don't blame him. Hogan couldn't help even if he tried. It was at least only 10 minutes long, which under normal circumstances I'd be quite happy with, but you could tell that they were rushing it, and they're just not capable of doing that. Anything remotely watchable between these two guys needs to be meticulously planned to the very last iota. And this was Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair just having a 10-minute match at their advanced ages with their skill sets rapidly dwindling, if not outright dwindled. I say backstage, it's daggers drawn again between these two, so I doubt there was too much going on in terms of discussing the match. And you could tell a limp main event for what is supposedly a blue ribbon pay-per-view. The fact that the turn made sense did not ne positively negate the previous 11-12 minutes of just about the right side of embarrassing action. It wasn't a total debacle, but you know, just about avoiding complete meltdown is not a recipe for success in its own right you know i think as a wrestling fan if you buy into this stuff you're kind of allowed to expect a little bit more from your pay-per-view main events but there you go that is what brought super brawl 9 to a close what is it with pay-per-views ending in nine that mean hogan has to stand tall at the end what is the <laughs> what is the hex surrounding the number nine anyway Guys, let's get your thoughts on this pay-per-view and a score rating out of 10. Uh, but I've sat here all day trying to think of how I was going to tackle this question, Rory. I, <laughs> I think <clears throat> that this show was generally, from an in-ring point of view, was generally quite good. There was some confusing finishes and some head-scratching finishes and strange-looking decisions. But all in all, it was... <sighs> A reasonably good show. Um, so, I think I might be a bit kind in my score that I'm going to give to it, but I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. Your thoughts and score, please, Bob. I agree with it being a relatively good show, uh, especially early on. The first probably, what, three out of five matches or so were, were pretty enjoyable. Uh, Steiner and DDP was, was pretty, you know, the best thing on the show for sure. Uh, I mean, nothing really outwardly sucked aside from Piper in Hall. Uh, maybe some underwhelming things and like the finishes may not have been great, but I tend to focus on the overall in-ring aspect of it. And I really feel like this is one of the first times that I, I didn't waste two hours and 45 minutes of my life watching a WWE pay-per-view. So that felt pretty good. Uh, I'm going to give it a, a higher rating than a five. I'm going to go with six out of 10. I feel like it, it's an average, like a just an average pay-per-view, which for WCW is pretty much a miracle. Yeah, as I said at the start, an improvement, a subtle improvement. This might well have been a 20 out of 10, considering what I've had to endure for the last three months. But I'm going to be considered, split the difference, give it 5.5 out of 10. A good undercard with people who can go, who are given a chance to go. Predominantly clean finishes, all very nice. Last 45 minutes, once again, as so often, raised questions which I don't particularly want to try to answer. But for the sake of this particular show, I will. Just not today, though. So five and a half out of ten, the mildest of mild recommendations. But I'm sure you all are pre-programmed to do now. Press your stop button when you hit the two hour. 
At the Arco Arena in Sacramento, California, we learned that Tony is to invigilate a sit-down meeting between Rick and David Flair. Jerry Flynn gets a win. That's where we are. He beat Mike Enos, by the way. Vince is still in charge of the NWO, apparently. Scott Norton seems about as convinced as I am. Bam Bam gives Van Hammer greetings from Asbury Park, and this is his level, I think. Brett is now back slumming it in number one contenders matches for the US title. Poor sucker. He is up against Booker, of course. And this match actually gets interrupted by Disco telling a guy in the production truck that at 11pm the NWO plan to pirate the signal, and if he helps them he will get triple the money. When we get back to the ring we see a fine contest, won cleanly by Booker, with the old Leo Burke finish. A little Disco goes a long way, so of course here he is again. Now he's beating Kaz with the Chartbuster. Ah, now Brian Adams is in charge of the black and white. All of this stuff really matters. Steiner still seems to think he has the honour of getting on her for 30 days. That's Kimberly Page, of course. DDP, when you are in hospital on your back screaming in pain, she will be on her back screaming my name. He would also quite like a match with Goldberg tonight. The Chris Jericho job tour just keeps on trucking. Saturn gives him a DDT, allowing him to take no laughing matter and a loss to Hugh Morris. They both brawl afterwards. Kevin Nash, Rey Mysterio, Sons Mask now, remember. He requested this match apparently, did Ray? Nash goes for the jackknife, but Ray punches and punches and punches. He then falls on top for the quick three count. Nash sort of sells shock at the defeat, but does this really mean anything? Oh no, Horace is in charge. Gene talks to Hennig and Wyndham. Hennig, there's a big difference between being good and being... Pause for effect. Great. And we are... Another pause for effect. Great. Why? Did you think Hennig was going to say something else? But Hogan tells Norton that you're the man, and said Norton goes on to beat the cat with a powerbomb. We do indeed get Steiner Goldberg, as everybody is prepared for, Buff gets involved, but then Rick Steiner returns and helps out. After the DQ, the NWO throw Vince to the Wolves. We don't get the planned Rick David confrontation, because... Wrestling fans... Very sad situation last night at Super Bowl. Reminds me of a good friend of mine, Sal Manila. David Flair, what on earth were you thinking? Well, you know what? I am the new and improved Space Mountain. The new and improved Space Mountain? Wait just a minute. Arn Anderson. I'm like an uncle to you. Let me tell you something right now. I was the one that brought you in on this. Let me tell you something. You, young man, have put me on the spot. You have put him on the spot? I'm not talking about a dog spot, liver spot, spotting a cut on your back where you gotta go see the dermatologist. I've had spots like that before. I'm not talking about a liver spot, Gene. What type of spot are you talking about, Art Anderson? I'm talking about a spot with Nature Boy. You know, I've been having this tire iron for a long time. Watch this. Is that not the best thing you've ever seen? But I'll tell you what, David. Art Anderson, David Flair, what are you doing? He is like a father to you. I just want to say a couple of things right here because I'm the hot rod and they call me that because I got six kids. And you know what? I'm a little bit sick of you. I'm disgusted with you. He's disgusted! And, and you, you hussy, go back on the street corner where they found you. You know, 
This, this there is, ain't this. no street cars like that in Rome. Rome, Georgia, Arn Anderson is, is from Rome, Roddy this, this Piper. This is disgusting. Wait a minute, fans. I'm hearing now. Let me introduce to you at this time the 13 time world heavyweight champion, the one and only nature boy, Rick Flair. Woo! Me! That's me. I'm a kiss-stealing, limousine-riding, well, Learjet-driving son of a gun, brother. The poor horseman. Yeah, and you know, if Hollywood Hogan didn't make so much money, if Hollywood Hogan didn't control wrestling, if Hollywood Hogan wasn't the greatest wrestler on the planet, I wouldn't have got my brains beat out last night. And even with the four horsemen, with Bongo Mongo, Uncle Arn, and those other couple little Shetland ponies watching my back. I had to go back to Charlotte, North and South Carolina, all points in between, in disgrace. Because even though I danced all night, uh -oh, and I he's danced gonna dance. longer, and I stripped it down, and they couldn't stop me any longer, I still went home a beaten man, just like when I lost the last Wait a minute. 13 huh. heavyweight titles. I lost the Hollywood Hogan beat the man, so he is the man. You How can. much did that shirt cost? This is an Armani Gucci Poochie Smoochie <laughs> shirt, and who cares? Because I'm the nature boy. I'm the wheeling, dealing, kiss dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. Woo! Woo! What Anderson. about four horsemen? Are they gonna live forever or what? Ric Flair, Woo! your son, David Flair, wearing the red and black. Well, that's just got me so upset. I don't know why I'm yelling and screaming, but I am. Let me take these shoes How off. much did those shoes cost? Those shoes are about $3,000 a piece. Wait that's a more money than Uncle Arn drank last night. You hey. are trying to take your pants off. Dory Funk, the Briscoes, and a bunch of other people nobody Har ever remembers. Harley Race and all them guys. That know you the are not wearing pants. All of you guys are a disgrace to this business. You have no respect for tradition. I just want to say, I just want to say. The four horsemen are riding I'm, again. I'm, I'm disgusted by the whole thing. I ain't leaving until my son, Those I don't are care if he forgives me. Oh, who cares about handcuffs? I'm going to stay here all night long because I don't care if he comes back to the family. I don't care if he comes back to Charlotte. I'm going to handcuff myself to this beautiful little filly because Rick Flair, the nature boy, is in heat. And until he gives me a chance to give her a ride on that old Space Mountain. A 60-minute oh, man. Well, watch, oh, Nature oh, Boy. Hold on, oh, fans. Oh, watch it, Nature Boy. Oh, heart, hold on. I we got cannot. Second win, just like I do every night when I go out of the town. And my family's not around. Up all night, stay a little longer. Stay all night, stay a little longer. The four horsemen are dead forever longer. Space Mountain, Ric Flair. Don't forget about me. One more thing to discuss before we wrap up for the month: a skit which took place right at the end of the final Nitro of the month. Now. It was trailed from the very start of the show that we were going to get a sit-down interview between Rick and David Flair to finally get to the bottom of what happened at Super Brawl. Now, we saw a lot of shots of the studio they were supposedly doing this one in. Now, Tony Schiavone himself was going to invigilate it. We saw lighting shots, makeup, all that stuff. But, of course, WCW, being WCW, 
wasted all of that time and effort because we didn't get any of it. Midway through the Bret Hart Booker T match I referenced earlier, we saw Disco bursting into the production truck saying that the NWO were planning on pirating the signal. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And he eventually coerced one of the stagehands into agreeing. When we were about to get the interview, Disco himself actually pressed the button as the stagehand got cold feet. So we went from what was supposedly the David Ric Flair interview to, oh yes, a pre-recorded NWO skit in which they are mocking the horseman. Because of course, that met with so much positive response last time. Yes, Nash is there again, as on, with the bold spot, with the beer cooler, with all really subtle gags. Hogan was playing Ric Flair in this one, just basically doing everything Flair's been doing over the last four months, you know, stripping down and handcuffs and all that. And The heart attack was referenced to, all very unfunny. You had Scott Hall doing the worst Scottish accent since I tried to impersonate Dell. Yes, I actually cut that one. Sadly, they did not cut this one from the broadcast. The only thing you could really salvage from this, in my opinion, was Disco's dead-on impression of Gene, uh, Gene Anderson. <laughs> they really should have brought that one in. Gene Oakland's, um, uh, Gene Oakland's interview cadence. It was bang on the mark. But sadly, very little about this was. Where the segment in September 97 was really quite cruel, I thought. Yes, I liked uh, Six. I keep wanting to call him X-Pac. Six, being Flair, crying all the time. That was fairly entertaining. The rest of it wasn't. Although it was at least part of a feud they were building up to. This, I don't think they needed to go there. I don't really, BMWO, what have they got to do with the Horsemen at the moment? It was just an excuse for bad comedy by somebody who is in charge. And we know he's in charge. And he's going to make sure we know it until, I don't know, our heads drop off or something. Guys, what did you think of this one? Well, number one, the one from 17 months ago is more entertaining. And like, I just, I would say from a comedy sense, I would enjoy that more than this one. Yeah, This is just an example of when you run out of ideas to generate heat, you think, hey, what worked 18, 17, 18 months ago? Oh, yeah, that one did. Fans really hated us. Oh, we need fans to hate us. So let's go recreate that. And then you insert people who were not part of it. So like Disco, yeah, he was good in his role. But Hogan, he Hogan wasn't even part of the, the original. That was like, that was for the, I believe, the lead up to War Games. So it would have been like, you know, Nash, Bagwell, Pac, all those guys. Yeah. So to me, it just felt forced. They're trying, they're trying too hard to be hated. You know, what they find to be funny isn't especially funny. They're doing the same recurring joke as every, to pertain to Arn. So you're not adding anything to it. Um, so, you know, it wasn't an effective thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not personally offended by skits of this nature because it's wrestling, it's context. They're generating heat. It's a feud. It's a story. It's just not very good. So... I didn't like it because it just wasn't very good, not because I were to be offended by it. Well, what do you expect from WCW at this point? You know, they have been going back to what has been working for them for the last three years. For the last year, really, haven't they? Uh, it's like the NWO would worked in the summer of 96. I will keep dragging that through. And 
keep getting diminishing returns upon it. And so they decided to do this horseman skit again. It's, it's not as funny as the first one. And the first one, yes, it was very real with where they touched upon the alcoholism of AA. And it was disrespectful in, in certain ways that they portrayed certain people in it. But as Bob said, this is pro wrestling. So everything's sort of fair game, really. And I just don't know where this is all leading. Is it going to lead to another War Games match with the Four Horsemen and the NWO? Because, again, that it's not the right time to do that at September. So it, does this mean it's all leading to another Flair Hogan match? Uh, I just hope to God that that is not happening. Oh, God, no. Please. <laughs> Anything but that match. Very well said indeed. And we will see how Kevin Nash's reign of terror continues. But no matter how long it goes on for, no matter what it takes, no matter what I have to do, I will stay the distance. But for now, God, let's get out of the time machine quick. And we are back. It is February 2019. And that was Volume 2 World Championship Wrestling Show. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on this particular one. Billy, we got there. What's going on in your world and... Where can people find you? Yes, uh, you can find me on the Twitter if you so wish. Um, I'm at Billy underscore J83, where I will probably talk about lots of wrestling-related things, mostly independent, because I'm a big old smart. Uh, I'm on Twitter, YoBobbyBoy89. On there, I'll talk about anything that's professional wrestling that is not present day because it sucks. And uh, I will also talk about New York Mets because I've recently started to uh, write for a website about them. So if you're a fellow Mets fan, we can be in misery together. Uh, I uh, also have a podcast, Icopod, with my buddy Austin Skinner. We are up to the 1994 Royal Rumble, which we'll be recording later this week. So the demise of the Lex Express, that should be fun to experience that. And then I also have a whole bunch of uh, written reviews uh, and articles and whatnot over at WrestlingRecaps.com. So you can check out any of the work at those two locations. Find us on Patreon.com forward slash Wrestling, Wrestling20YRS. If you drop us $5, you will hear all our special shows. Out of Timeline can be a watch-along of a certain event, can be a discussion point, we can be bit of a quiz who knows something new something different to say thank you for supporting us you can also just drop us one dollar where you get all shows as soon as they're edited before the end of the month nice and early for you and if you're happy with the free shows then we are happy that you are listening you can find us on twitter and facebook wrestling 20 yrs we're easy to find twitter is the one i'm in charge of facebook is the one chris lacy invigilates all sorts of stuff going on there. We talk about the current product. We talk about timeline stuff. Please drop us a line. You can also find me in many other places too. I'm on the Facebook group for our Vantage Point. Also check out their superb retro wrestling podcast. Drops every Monday. Bigelow34.proboards.com run by the guys at the brilliant Place to Be Nation. I am currently on there working through the very, very lengthy shortlist for their project they are doing this year. The 100 Greatest Televised WWE Matches. So drop in, see my thoughts on some of those and slag me off to your heart's content. And speaking of Place to Be Nation, if you haven't had enough of World Championship Wrestling discussion, then please check out the new Talking WCW show on the Place to Be Nation feed with Tim Capel, Jennifer Smith and Greg Phillips. They looked at Dusty Rhodes on the latest edition. 
brilliant, brilliant stuff. A great mixture of analysis and humour. So check those guys out. Friends of this particular show as well. And you can also find me, one more place, at Scott Keefe's Blog of Doom. If you are one of the many new listeners who's joined us since that review show from two months ago, then remember we do have an archive going all the way back to August of 1993, when it was all fields around here, when it was all Lex Luger and the Shockmaster. A simpler, simpler time. And indeed, two years before I joined the project. By all means, check that out. Spotify is the best place to do that if you're new to the show. August 93, all the way to the present day. All shows conducted in timeline, so they never date, as we creep closer and closer to our 200th show. Stay tuned for that one. But from Billy Johnson, Bob Colling, I am Rory McNamara. Thank you very much for joining us. Again, just quickly, Volume 1, WWF, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Volume 3, ECW, Hardcore TV. And as Tony would say, we're out of time, we gotta go.